Please rise and body your spirit for our call to worship. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The decrees of the Lord are sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is clear, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. You may be seated. 
Grace and peace to you from the First Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. Welcome to everyone worshiping in our sanctuary, and welcome to everyone who is worshiping with us from other locations. We are glad and grateful to gather in the Lord's house. And because we have gathered in the Lord's house, it is in the name of Jesus Christ that we make our welcome. And because that welcome is in the name of Jesus Christ, there are no qualifying adjectives whatsoever attached to it. We are glad and grateful to be together, and we greet one another in Christ's name. Let me highlight just a couple of things for us before we move into the body of the service. The first is to remind worshipers that the city of Philadelphia is under a mask mandate, so we do ask you to be masked during worship. Your worship leaders will take them off when we are speaking, so for the benefit of those with hearing loss. I'd like to invite everyone to a time of fellowship at the conclusion of this service on our 21st Street sidewalk. You can make your way there either through the exit at the rear of the sanctuary or through the front. And uh, there you'll find that our deacons will put out some light refreshments, but most importantly, the opportunity for us to continue conversations. We are in week three of a five-week sermon series of things we were always taught not to talk about in polite society. And so, you are invited to talk back to the sermon. Today's chief interrogator will be the Reverend Cindy Jarvis, and you're invited at 12.15 to come to the McCall Room. We'll open the windows. There'll be plenty of fresh air to, uh, to talk about the sermon, to say what you think about it, and to react to it. Um, we hope to see you there. And, uh, and I look forward to your insights. With these things noted, let us continue our worship with our confession of sin. God is ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So let us turn to God in confession, first together and then in silence. Eternal God, though we are made in your image, we fail to live as you made us to live. Where we have missed opportunities to serve, we need forgiveness. Where we have been unkind, we need forgiveness. Where we have caused pain, we need forgiveness. Where we harbor guilt and shame, we need forgiveness for what we can't know but cannot say out loud. We need forgiveness. Remake us, we pray. Create in us clean hearts so that our lives may reflect the fullness of your image. Through Christ Jesus Christ our Lord, we make these and all our prayers. lifts the weary, lightens the load of those who are overly burdened, supports and strengthens those who have been knocked down. 
proclaim the forgiveness of God so graciously offered. Know the new life Christ has given us. Believe the good promise of the gospel. In Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. Our first scripture reading comes to us this morning from the Gospel of Matthew in the 22nd chapter. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? He said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the laws and the prophets. Our epistle lesson is taken from the 13th chapter of Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. Familiar words, listen to them anew. If I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. 
And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all of my possessions, and if I hand over my body so that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know only in part, and we prophesy only in part. But when the complete comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. For now, we see in the mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now, I know only in part... Then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. And now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. And the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Almighty, eternal God, grant now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts may be acceptable, even pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. A preacher, not me, goes to a new call at a new church in a one-stoplight sort of town. And his sole means of transportation is his bicycle. So he is absolutely devastated when his bicycle goes missing within a few days of his arrival in his new town. And he concludes, because it's a one-church town, that the thief must be a member of his new congregation. And he's so upset by this fact that he calls a meeting of the elders and tells them about the theft. One of the elders intrepidly offers a plan. Ours is a small community, he says. 
the thief must surely be here on Sunday. Now, if you confront the congregation directly with the theft, the thief will know that we are looking and will hide the bicycle. So instead, preach a sermon on the Ten Commandments. When you get to thou shalt not steal, bear down really hard on that one. Talk about hell. And as you do, watch the congregation. The purple surely be squirming at the awareness of what the consequences of their actions may be, and that way we'll know where to go to find your bike. Sunday, the plan proceeds. The preacher is in fine form. He is preaching up a storm on the Ten Commandments and the perils of hell when suddenly he ends the sermon, pronounces the benediction, and abruptly leaves the sanctuary. The elders follow him to the manse, eaten up with curiosity. Preacher, one of the elders said, it was going so well, I, I was even becoming a little afraid of hell, and I didn't steal your bike. Why did you stop? The preacher said, well, as he shoved clothes into a suitcase, I was preaching my way toward thou shalt not steal, but as soon as I got to thou shalt not commit adultery, I remembered where I left my bike. The moral of this story is this. Whatever we have to say about sin in any form, we do well to start by first looking at ourselves. I start with this caution before, because for reasons that we will discuss in a moment, sex and the discussion of morality and sin surrounding it seems to draw a disproportionate level of interest and indeed judgment in the modern church. Sadly, shame and disgrace seem to be a recurrent theme in the church's treatment of sex and sexuality. For a very long time, any variance from an established norm, an unwed pregnancy, or a physical and emotional attraction to a person of the same gender might bring disgrace upon one and one's family. But if the church is to be a place of honesty about the myriad issues of sex and sexuality, we must first and foremost be a place of grace. For all of us, Jesus Christ offers grace upon grace with no qualification for receiving it. The story of the Bible, from beginning to end, is the story of God's unconditional love to the whole of creation. So any theological conversation about sex must be grounded in grace. Well, it turns out the Bible actually has quite a lot to say about sex, and much of it is patently sexist or homophobic. So if we're going to draw any lessons, we have to come to grips with that. Now, for some of you, this will be review, because I know that First Church spent a season studying human sexuality while our denomination was struggling with ordination standards. And for some of you, this may be completely new. 
and I invite you to come and talk more about it after worship, if that is the case. But let's start by putting some context around what the Bible actually says and see what holds. Because in the end, we must remember that the physical expression of love is a gift from God. And since we don't worship a capricious God, we should assume that there are reasons for many of the prohibitions surrounding sex in the Bible. Now, I am going to try to cover a lot of ground very quickly here, so this is going to involve some gross simplifications. But basically, the issues that lead to much of what we encounter in the first five books of the Bible, that's the law as we understand it, are idolatry, property rights, and the maintenance of creation. So let's just get right to it. Let's start with idolatry. Yahweh, the God of Sarah, Rebekah, Leah, and Rachel, as well as their husbands, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is a jealous God who tolerates no rivals for worship. And yet the Hebrews and the proto-Hebrews lived in places where the indigenous pagan religions were centered on fertility. So this meant that the people all around God's people were concerned with assuring the fertility of the earth by participating in rituals around fertility. And I'm trying to be delicate here, but essentially what it boils down to is that the very people God was trying to form into God's people were surrounded by alternate opportunities, shall we say, for worship in the form of cultic expression of sexuality, which is to say that a male would go to a temple and there meet a priestess who would help him to participate in the fertility cycle of the earth, thus pleasing the gods and goddesses who assured the continual cycle of birth, death, and rebirth that surrounded the agriculture of the day. But the Hebrews, the people that God is calling into being as a people, represent the beginning of monotheism. And the God of the Hebrews, our God, forbade cultic prostitution for God's people because it was idol worship. Much of what is fenced out in the early books of the Bible is sexual expression tied to idolatry. The worship of other gods, in this case, through sexual practice. Second, property rights. Uh, this one is pretty offensive by our standards today. Women, children, and slaves belonged to their households. In some ways, this did serve as a protection for their rights under the law because God had expectations for the heads of households that are, in fact, laid out in those first five books of the Bible. But the prohibition against adultery that we encounter in the Decalogue, as well as elsewhere, has to do with creating communities of trust and well-being where households function harmoniously within and peacefully without. So in good communities, with good relations, one did not steal the property of another household and violate it. That would destroy the shalom of the entire community. Now, our modern understanding of adultery is the violation of the covenant commitment that adults make to one another 
is a well and good understanding, but it has very little to do with the ancient understanding of maintaining the integrity of lineage for the benefit of the male offspring's inheritance. Now, quickly, this last one, the problem of keeping creation going, this has less to do with the bearing of children than it does to do with same-gender relations. In the early portions of Scripture, there is a thread of thought that is referred to by biblical scholars as creation theology, and it has to do with the conviction that creation is incredibly delicate and ordered and only a rigid maintenance of certain boundaries can prevent the devolution of creation back into the chaos from which God called it into order in the first place. Now, remember the days of creation of Genesis. On the first three days, God created places. And on the second three days, God created things to go in those places very orderly. There is a place for everything, and everything is in its place. And through the maintenance of this order, the chaos or the formless void that God called creation into being out of is held at bay. And that is the source of a lot of the ritual ordering and abomination talk that we encounter in such books as Leviticus and Numbers. So that is a crash course in the issues that underpin the prohibitions surrounding sex in the Old Testament. Avoidance of idolatry, preservation of property lines, and the maintenance of the created order. Those are not the issues that the church is facing today. The issues that are important to us today are these, I think. In a world that sometimes seems hypersexualized and on occasion cheap, how do I live my life with integrity and commitment? How do I teach my children, if I have them, to grow up to be persons of integrity and commitment? And in the meantime, how do I prevent my children from making mistakes that might alter the course of their lives dramatically? Let's do these in reverse order, and let's start with the kids. Perhaps one of the most important things that we can realize is that children are not adults. And as I said last week, children are incredible observers and terrible interpreters. So the content of what we see, say, and hear is received differently by young people than it is by old people, which for our purposes today should be everyone over the age of 20. Now, we all encounter more distorted images and expectations of sexuality than we probably should, but adults do it with a somewhat formed sense of ethic and identity. Children and adolescents, on the other hand, are still in the process of forming ethics and identity. And when we baptize children, we promise, every one of us, that we will show them by the manner of our lives what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. So it's vitally important that the church be clear in its expression that sex and sexuality are not inherently bad or sinful but that sometimes something that God means for good can be made hurtful. 
Christians must be able to speak honestly and without shame about matters of sexuality. And to the extent that our own misunderstandings of Scripture and what it teaches have contributed to a a culture of shame, we, the church, must repent. Now, much of the issues that the writers of the Old Testament were concerned about remained enough of a problem that Paul sought to establish some ground rules for the newly forming Christian churches that he ministered to through his correspondence as well. And Paul also deals with cultic prostitution, both male and female, in his letters. Inasmuch as these are not our issues, some of what he has to say may sound a bit antiquated in places. But the advice he's giving is actually practical to the core. Look, Paul says, that's what the pagans do. And you don't want to be confused with a prostitute, so don't do that. That's the whole source for that bit about women covering their heads. He didn't want people to think that the Christians were prostitutes, and that's how you knew a prostitute. In those days, it was a woman who went about it in the streets with her head uncovered. Now, since our concerns today are not about how to avoid being mistaken for a sex worker or how to keep creation from unraveling, perhaps the source of a uniquely Christian sexual ethic for modern life should come not from what the Bible prohibits regarding sexuality, but instead from what the Bible teaches about love. Every aspect of what it means to be a child of God is grounded in love. Indeed, the Imago Dei, the image of God in which we are made, is the image of God as love, because the triune God self-defines in loving community. That is why the heart of the law and the prophets, as Jesus said, is the commandment to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. That is the heart of what it means to be human. And that is the basis for a human sexuality that we seek to love the Lord our God and to love our neighbor. And that starts with wanting what is best for our neighbor. Where sex is concerned, that is an ethic that is grounded in love. And I don't mean a shallow, facile understanding of love, but love like what Paul wrote to the Corinthians about, or love like we find in the letters of John where perfect love casts out fear. Paul wrote that wonderful hymn to love that we encountered today in 1 Corinthians for a congregation that was not being very lovely. Sometimes sex is the fullest expression of human love, and sometimes it is used in very unloving ways. When it is the latter, our calling is to live and love in ways that give witness to what we believe 
about Jesus Christ. I worry sometimes that we confuse grace, the free expression of God's unconditional love for creation, with an anything-goes mentality. That's not the way it's supposed to be. God means for our lives to be for the reconciliation of the world. God is using our lives to show the ways that God loves us. Do you know what love is? Well, the Apostle Paul didn't seem to. He didn't try to define it. Instead, he simply described it. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or arrogant or boastful or rude. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And in the end, it is love that never ends. When I set out to preach a sermon series like this one ten years ago, my colleagues ribbed me constantly about attendance spiking the day we got to the sermon about sex. I heard a lot of jokes, which I am not going to share with you today, and one of my colleagues suggested that I should switch the sex and the money sermons and not tell anybody. I I think they would have noticed. But attendance did spike. I saw people in church that day I only ever saw at Christmas and Easter otherwise. And that told me that people do need the church to speak clearly and honestly about sex. People do need and want an ethic of sexuality that is not based on shame, but teaches us to live with integrity and allows us to be as fully human as we can be this side of the reign of Christ. I was talking recently with an old friend of mine, she's 92 years old, about the interest that the sex sermon had garnered. And I said to her, you know, everyone thinks the sex sermon will be interesting. My goal now is to make it boring. To which she dryly replied, I assure you it isn't. That's rather the point. And that's the way God intended it to be. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.
Let us together confess what we believe in the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, in the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. In in an age where we are doing a lot of contactless things, I remind you that you can make an offering online. And you can also leave an offering in the plates after the service. As we think of this as one of the many ways that we give and offer ourselves to God. Freely we have received, now freely let us give.
Eternal God, we rejoice today in the gift of life, which we have received by your grace and the new life you give in Jesus Christ. We rejoice in the gift of love, which you show us in abundance. In this moment of prayer, we pause to give thanks for the love of our families, biological or chosen, the support of our friends, strength and abilities to serve your purpose, this community in which we live. Opportunities to give as we have received. God of grace, we offer our prayers for the needs of others and commit ourselves to serve them even as we have been served in Jesus Christ. In this moment of prayer, we pause to remember those who are overwhelmed by the burden of leadership, those who are exhausted from navigating uncertainty and change, those who are ill and their caregivers, those who are in need of courage to move forward. Merciful God, you call us to journeys where we cannot see the destination, by paths untrodden, through perils unknown. Give us faith to go out with courage, not knowing where we go, but only that your hand is leading us and your love supporting us. Finally, hear us now as we pray the prayer Christ taught us to pray by saying together, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.
Now faith, hope, and love abide these three, and the greatest of these is love. Life is complex sometimes, but love is what underpins it all. So let us build our lives around love. Now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance on you and those you love and give you peace both this day and forevermore. Amen.